0: God, you are so good. That's why we're here. We're not here, Father, out of out of habit or out of some level of cultural commitment or family heritage commitment. We're here because in a dark world, in a world full of pain and sorrow and hurt, you are good. And it's your goodness that we've come to receive. And be reminded of this morning. And so Father as we meet with you. And as you are here to meet with us. We pray for new mercy. For all of us. To receive a fresh sense of your goodness. Of your love. Of your holiness. That we pursue in obedience. Father we long to see you face to face. And today. We long to see you through the preaching of your word, through the prayers we pray together, through the songs we sing together, through the moments of of encouragement we receive, brother to brother, sister to sister, as we gather as a Christian family this morning. Father, we lift up the needs of the body this morning, and we praise you for for good news, for good prayer requests, updates of people that are doing better but Father, we also lift up to you those that are that are sick. And in particular, we remember um Evelyn Smith, who went to the hospital yesterday and was admitted with COVID. Father, we we pray for her health, for your presence with her, for your protection over her, for your presence in in, Hor- in Horace, and, and that Father, you would be um in the hospital room with Evelyn and at home with Horace, giving wisdom to to their um, daughter, Gail, and their son, David. Father, give them wisdom to know how to follow you in this difficult trial. And for all those that are sick and battling various um, diseases and illnesses, Father, we we pray your presence in them, and we pray your healing touch, your healing hand over, um, over them all. Because, Father, you are the great physician, we entrust lives to you. And, Father, as we remember that yesterday was the 49th anniversary of the um, Supreme Court decision in Roe versus Wade. We mark that day with today being the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And so, Father, we join with other churches in our community and all around the nation and with local ministries such as Women's Enrichment Center in our community to ask for the end of this practice, to ask for you to move in just laws and a just decision to the, to the Dobbs case, Father, that will be decided this year. Father, we thank you that as we look over the course of, of 2022, we have um, before us the most realistic possibility that we've seen in some time of the overturn of Roe versus Wade and, and the, the end of um, legalized abortion throughout the whole nation. And Father, then we know that if that does happen, we then go back to our knees to pray, for state by state as, as these laws are evaluated and debated. But, Father, in the midst of, of all of that, we don't just pray for legal processes. We pray for people. We pray for those children created in your image, that, Father, you would grant them life and health and safety. And, Father, we pray for those mothers in, in crisis and, and confusion, that you would bring godly believers around them, to help them through their crisis. We pray for those who have already made the decision towards abortion. Father, we pray for your uh, your grace and forgiveness on them as they grieve the decisions they have made. But Father, also we pray for those ministries um, that help the unborn and help the, the mother, but also that help the children after the fact, for good foster care and adoption ministries. Father, you love the cause of the orphan and you call us to minister to orphans. And so, Father, may we be a people, a, a, a kingdom people, that take seriously what you say about life and about the, the inherent value of every human life created in your image. And we take seriously what you say about serving the least of these, those that are in poverty, those that are um, uh, sojourners and and refugees, those that are um, that are orphans and those that are widows. Father, may we take each of those commands that you give us seriously, for, to care for those that are most vulnerable. So, Father, as we pray for the end of abortion in our country, Father, we also pray for your church to rise up and to meet the demand of ministry to those that are hurting, that, Father, you would call us and give us wisdom to know where those open doors are to meet those needs of people in crisis. And, Father, now speak to us through your word as you direct us what, about what it means to follow you, how to live in your presence, and how to live out the gospel in our day-to-day lives and relationships. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here Our 11 o'clock, our third service of the day, which is uh, still sort of weird, but also super fun. And so thanks for, for being the, uh, the last group through today. We had great services at 8.30 and 9.45. Next week we'll do the same, 8.30, 9.45, and 11. That would at least be the situation next week. The, following week, we may go back to, in February, two services where the elders will be discussing um, that potential change uh, t- tomorrow night, so pray for us in that. I'll also give you an update as far as the, the main building is is concerned and the the aftermath of of the fire and the cleanup, all of that sort of stuff. Um, we will hopefully know more. I've, I've been told January 31st is going to be another kind of big marker day. We still do not have cleaning scheduled, so be praying for us in that, but um, as we go through insurance process after insurance process after insurance process, um, we there is movement in the right direction, and so please just be praying for um, uh, for for God to do what He intends in us. And I, I think this is this is something that maybe we haven't prayed about in here before, but um, we trust that God is sovereign control over our church, over our families, over us as individuals, and while we gather here, it's different. Um, it's, it, it, there's some pluses and there's some minuses, and maybe you've, you've interacted with people you wouldn't normally interact with. Um, we've had smaller services. There's a little bit more intimacy, and, and the worship, it kind of takes on a different feel in here, which is a really good thing. Um, there are some limitations to having three services and so many people in and out, and you miss some people along the way. Um, but I just trust that God is doing something in us in this season. And so I'd ask you to pray with us For that, for whatever it is that God is doing, whatever it is God is preparing us for, that we would act in faith and act in expectation that that God is working in our midst, even in this uh, season of transition. Now, turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Oh, and I'll simply say, uh, tonight our our ministry is happening as normal tonight. So youth ministry is normal this evening. Awana is normal. It's a good feeling to say that. So we've had a couple weird weeks and holidays and all that kind of stuff. Um, Also, we now have four life groups meeting this evening, and we had uh, three that met this morning. We have a couple that meet during the week, and so if you want information about life groups, now is a great time to join a life group to get more committed or get more connected to new people and to kind of go deeper in relationship in the church. So much of what I'm going to say today, what Jesus says to us from Luke chapter 17, just has to be lived out in community has to be lived out rubbing shoulder to shoulder with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I, if you're not currently involved in something, come talk to me or talk to one of the staff. We'd love to get you connected um, somewhere. I'll also say one of the, another great way um, to get connected is Wednesday nights during our prayer meeting that meets at 7 o'clock, both on campus and on Zoom. It's a smaller, intimate group. And whether you come to be a prayer warrior and intercede on behalf of others or whether you come with a burden and need prayer yourself, you're, you're welcome there, and we'd love to have you. And if you, you come and you say, I don't really, I'm don't i not really confident about what these words I'm supposed to say in prayer, and I'm not comfortable praying in front of people, that's okay. You're still welcome. We'd still love to have you. And uh, there's no better way to learn how to pray than to be sitting in the same room with people that love prayer, that love interceding on behalf of others. So come and join us um, Wednesday nights at 7, either in this, um, in the prayer room in the front building or... Or on Zoom. Now, Luke chapter 17, uh, I'm t- uh, what I've kind of titled this is the core competencies of kingdom disciples. And the illustration that I had in my mind as I was thinking about this is if you've ever had a job transition, you know how awkward it can be. Because you have to develop a different skill set moving from one job to another, different responsibilities, different practices, different approaches to your job. So moving job to job within the same industry or the same company, that's one level of challenge. But some of you may have had the challenge of actually leaving one career path and and taking a a totally different path where you were pursuing something one day and then you moved and you started going in a totally different direction. You had to not just learn a new approach to a new office or or, or a a new business or anything like that, but totally different core competencies that you needed a totally different information set, set of training and skills and disciplines that that it takes to be successful in this new career or this new vocation. And, And we use the word vocation a little bit loosely in English, but the reason I use that word today is to encourage us to think through if we are going the way of the world one day and then called by Jesus to follow him another day, That's a more significant vocation change than any of us would experience in in the workforce in a 9-to-5 job. See, we use the word vocation in English as kind of a synonym for career. But what the word actually means is a synonym for calling. It's not a synonym for career, it's a synonym for calling. Where vocation comes from the Latin vocatio, which means calling, and usually gets translated as such into English. And if you think about it, you know that the word vocal... Has to do with the voice, and if you think about it long enough, it starts to make sense in your mind. Yeah, vocation—that's not a career term. That's an an audible calling from something to something. And so, our vocation as Christians is to be a Christian. Our primary calling or vocation is to follow Christ, not to be an an engineer or an accountant or a pastor or a teacher or whatever your career is. Your calling is, as a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And see, so many of us have been walking with Christ for so long that we sort of have this comfort level of what it means in the day-to-day to live a life that follows Christ. But I, I want to challenge you this morning to take a time out from the rest of your life, just for, for the, the 30, 40 minutes we have remaining here. Take a timeout from everything else. And let's pretend for a second... You're hearing about what it means to follow Jesus for the first time. And I want you to to really, practically, for for the, the length of this service, put everything else in your life on hold and say, what would it look like if Jesus was the most important thing, if he's the core and everything else has to work around him? So all those other responsibilities, uh, all those commitments you have, all those things that you do every day, let's put those aside just for this morning and say, if Jesus is the center, what do I pursue first? That's what it means when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. The illustration that Jesus uses all through the book of Luke, it's practical in one sense. He's literally calling people to physically walk behind him and follow him. But for us, it becomes the ultimate illustration of the Christian life. The Christian life is a journey on which we are walking behind Jesus, beside brothers and sisters, seeking to get closer to Jesus and to be conformed into his image on the way to the eternal kingdom where he's leading us. So on that path, there are obstacles that we're going to talk about today. But this, this section in Luke chapter 17, it, if you open up to Luke 17, go ahead, open it in your Bible, look down, you've probably got four paragraphs, there might be four different headings in the sections there, and it makes it seem like there's, there's four different themes of this passage. But what I want to show you is why I think that going in verses 1 through 19, four different paragraphs, I'm sure, in your Bible, but in verses 1 through 19, there's actually a common theme in which Jesus is preparing us to live kingdom lives. Now, in verse 20 and following, he tells us about the kingdom coming. And so if you want to talk about the end of the world, let's wait till next week. We'll talk about the end of the world. That's, that's the theme for next week. But for today, we're talking about what it means to be a kingdom citizen. And, and what I'm going to give you today is what I think Jesus is saying of seven different disciplines, or we'll call them core competencies, of what it means to be a kingdom disciple. We'll start in verses 1 through 3 first. And you don't, have to, you don't have to read them all or write them all down right there, but that slide right there, it's going to come up a few times today. But that, this is the seven big points that we're getting to today about what it means to follow Jesus. So, verses 1 through 3. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble or to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. And we'll stop there halfway through verse 3. Just in this first section, we see this first command of Jesus in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves or watch yourselves. And that's what I'm calling the first core competency. The first thing that we really need to get about what it means to follow Jesus is watch the way you live. Be careful lest you fall. Watch your, your own sin and righteousness to make sure that you are pursuing righteousness and not falling into sin. Now, he gives an illustration here that is really a, a word picture because the word for, that he uses for temptation to sin is literally stumbling block. And remember, I told you that all throughout following Jesus is all about walking on a path. So he has his disciples walking on a path, and he says, Obstacles or stumbling blocks, are going to show up on the path of following me. But woe to you if you are that obstacle for a, a little one. That, that's the challenge here, that everybody is going to face obstacles. So, so just get prepared. You, you don't need to get too bent out of shape. You don't need to get too upset. If you face a temptation, you should not be surprised by temptation. You should not be surprised by obstacles uh, to follow Jesus. You should be prepared and ready for those to come. Jesus is promising you they will come. But the warning here is not just don't fall into temptation. I mean, that's, that's part one. That, that's obvious there. Don't fall into temptation. Don't stumble over a stumbling block. But the bigger warning is watch yourself and don't become a stumbling block. And in verse 2, this challenge is pretty significant. It would be better to be the the guy that has a millstone hung around his neck and being thrown into the sea than to be the guy that causes one little one to sin. Everybody in this first century knew what he was talking about with a millstone. But when I went to Nazareth a few years ago, um, we saw a millstone and we saw a donkey going about his daily work with a millstone. And what we saw was this huge stone that, that, I mean, from the floor, to it was probably up that, that high. I mean, it was a thick, thick stone. And it was big, too. It was a circle. It was round. And it was probably, the diameter was probably about the width of half of this stage. So, I mean, you're talking a huge stone, a huge amount of weight. And the way it worked was you'd have a donkey that would be grinding out the grain on the millstone by, by walking. He'd have, a, he'd have an attachment to him, and he would just walk around the circular millstone all day. Not a very exciting job, but it's a donkey. We're not worried about the donkey. But he just walks around in a circle all day, grinding out the grain on this huge rock. And everybody in Jesus' original audience knew how big that rock was. I have to tell you how big that rock was, so that you could get that image and you can really see this is certain death. This is a terrible way to die. It's tortuous. It's, it's suffering on the way down to have this huge rock tied to your neck and then be thrown into the bottom of the sea. That's a terrible death. And Jesus is saying, that's what happens to those that cause a little one to turn away from me, to stumble on the path to following me. Now, there's two groups of people that could be referred to here. and We kind of got to understand, who's Jesus talking about? is Jesus talking about the, those that are stumbling blocks. Are the stumbling blocks fake Christians or who play the game for a little bit, maybe outwardly look like Christians but aren't really Christians? Or are those real Christians who just mess up and lose their way? And and I think the, the image is so strong of the millstone, it, it sort of lends us to think these are probably fake Christians. He's probably talking about eternal punishment. And, and I don't I think what's most important is that we realize that both groups can create a stumbling block. There is such a thing as wolves in sheep's clothing that in the last days, Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. And we can say as Christians, they went out from us because they were never really among us. So they might have looked the part for a time, but they were never really serious about their faith. They were just in it for the wrong reasons. But then, and, and those, those people can really turn a lot of people away with, with their actions, with their manipulation of the gospel or of the church or false doctrine, whatever. But then there's this other category of people that are true believers, that mess up, that hurt people along the way, and so seriously hurt people along the way that some of those people they hurt along the way are put off towards the church or put off towards the cause of Christ because of somebody else's actions. We live in an age in which, sort of as general, society is anti-institutional. Like, people don't like authority. People don't like government, don't like schools, don't like churches, don't like big business. Anything that feels like an institution that feels like bureaucracy and decisions made behind closed doors and authority, people in in society today just don't like that. And so there's sort of this general anti-institutionalism that affects the church to where Never in, in recent history have we seen this much distrust of, of the church as we do today. And so some of that is general societal trends. Some of that is the fact that people just don't want to be told they're a sinner. And, and some people don't like the church and don't trust the church, don't want to listen to the church, because they don't want to be told that the way they're living their life is wrong. They don't like what the church teaches about sin and salvation. But then there's this other category of people that we really need to be mindful of. Because there's a whole category of people out there that distrust the church for reasonable reasons. Because sometimes the church messes up. Sometimes people that name the name of Christ commit heinous acts. Sometimes people are raised up to a position of authority and they misuse that authority even within the church. And you know, we could, we're not going to name the names this morning, but we could list the big names of those who have had very public failings and fallings of financial indiscretion, sexual sin, abuses of power. And there are so many people in our society today that have been hurt by those. And, and we know about them, we know about the big names. What we don't know about is all the, the little names in small local churches that have, that have hurt people just as badly the cases of, of abuse or misuse of authority or financial impropriety that happen in small scales that never make the news but really turn whole families away from the church and cause them to mistrust or dislike the church or dislike a certain denomination or, or group of Christians. We've got to be reasonable about that to say, sometimes, guys, we as, as Christians need to recognize not all Christians get it right all the time. Sometimes Christians create their own problems. Sometimes we're persecuted for righteousness' sake. And sometimes people distrust the church because the church is full of sinners too. And you know, we gotta, we got to gotta deal with both. And we got to be able to be repentant To say, some church leaders get it wrong, let's pursue the way of righteousness and let's pick up those young ones who have been who are tripping over the stumbling blocks of church leaders or Christians who have messed up and and profaned the name of Christ for others. Because by naming the name of Christ, while naming the name of Christ, they have not honored the 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 cause of Christ or the kingdom of Christ. And Jesus is saying, for those that do that, there will be accountability. There will be repercussions. But then he goes on. So, so number one, first thing we need to see here is watch. Watch yourself that you do not fall into sin and that you do not cause others to sin. Because the church is full of people that are wolves in sheep's clothing. Some people are wolves in sheep's clothing that are not really following Christ that we need to look out for. But also, the church has real Jesus-loving Christians just mess it up sometimes hurt other people hurt other people without meaning to because they're still sinners and because we still mess up so we've got to be careful watch ourselves and here's where he continues watch each other this is where it gets a little bit uncomfortable back to verse three we'll read all verse three and four pay attention to yourselves if your brother sins rebuke him and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive. So Jesus says the paying attention is not just to yourselves, but also to everybody else, to your brothers and sisters within the Christian community, within the community of those that follow Jesus. And, and this is where uh, there's three words I want you to see from verses three and four. For the, verses one through three, one, one word, watch, watch yourself. Three through four, three words, rebuke, repent, repent and forgive. If you know the gospel, if you know that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, is all about the forgiveness of sins by which sinners are made righteous by Jesus's sacrifice and receive new life. That's the gospel. It's really easy to see how forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. It's a gospel word all day. Repent, At the heart of the gospel. You cannot receive forgiveness without repentance. So it's really easy to emphasize repentance and forgiveness in the gospel. They're right there at the heart. What's maybe a little bit uncomfortable for some of us is that Jesus is commanding us to rebuke. And what I want you to see, what I want to challenge our thinking with this morning is that rebuke is at the heart of the gospel too. It's uncomfortable. It hurts. It's one way where we can really mess it up. You want to become a stumbling block? Rebuke somebody without, without recognizing your own sin. That's going, to be, that's going to create a stumbling block. But nevertheless, we're called as brothers and sisters to be so concerned and so caring and so loving towards each other that we do not just watch the sin in our own lives, but at a certain point call out the sin in somebody else's life. And think about it. It's at the heart of the gospel because... You do not receive forgiveness without repentance. And you do not repent without recognizing that you have something to repent of. And so before forgiveness can come, repentance must come. And before repentance can come, conviction must come. And conviction comes through rebuke. Now, a lot of times, conviction of sin, I mean, primarily, the work of the Holy Spirit has to be involved with any conviction of sin. And sometimes, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin all by himself, and he doesn't need our help. And that's this kind of, of conviction we love, right? Because we would love it if it just worked that way all the time. If, if we could just pray, see a brother or sister that's sinning, and the solution is we just pray for the Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin, and then the Holy Spirit works in their heart, convicts them of their sin, and you don't have to say anything about it, and your brother or sister comes to you and says, boy, I've been sinning. The Holy Spirit really showed this to me. Can you help me walk through this? That's like the perfect scenario, right? Right? But Jesus calls us to be a little bit more courageous than that. Like I'm not, I'm not saying it's wrong to pray that the Holy Spirit does the work of conviction on his own. We should pray for that. But we also have to be bold enough, loving enough, courageous enough to be used by the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit does want to convict people of their sins. He doesn't need us, but he wants to use us as his instruments in that. So sometimes... Somebody just wakes up one morning and says, boy, I've been sinning, and I really need to repent of that. And sometimes that person wakes up because of a conversation with you. Sometimes the Holy Spirit sends you for that conversation of loving conviction, loving correction, and yes, loving rebuke. And I think there's this this sense in this word that makes us uncomfortable but if we love each other and we want to live in community together and want to live out the gospel, we have to be humble enough to say, I don't get it right all the time, and therefore sometimes I need to be rebuked. And, and if I don't get it right all the time, I should, be, I should have ears to hear when somebody comes to me and says, actually, Tim, I think you messed this one up. Actually, Tim, maybe you were joking. Maybe you were just having a bad day. Maybe you were venting. I don't know. But what you said, Tim, it hurt me. Now, I need you to forgive me if I sin against you. But in order for you to forgive me, I should repent of what I've done. But what if I don't know what I've done? Then I need you to be courageous enough to come to me and say, Tim, I think you messed up. That, that careless word that you spoke, that careless statement that you spoke, it hurt me, and let's talk about that and that that loving rebuke it breaks down barriers now now arrogant rebuke builds barriers and and we all sort of default we're better at that okay cuz we're sinners too and and so we're not talking about the kind of rebuke that points out the faults in others so that we can feel better about ourselves so that we can, by comparison, say, "Boy, that person really messing up over here," and I'm literally trying to point to the camera. I'm not like pointing to anybody here except Elliot. Sorry, Elliot. Um, but that that sort of loving rebuke is a way of breaking down a barrier. But an arrogant rebuke that says, "You're messed up. I'm better than you." That that, that doesn't help anybody. Okay, it's it's spiritually destructive to both yourself and the other person because you're both now stuck in your sin. As an example of this, I, we're all sinners, we all make mistakes, and sometimes we get tricked into living this Christian life that says to be a good Christian, we have to look good on the outside, we have to get it right all the time, and because we're told if you read your Bible, pray every day, you'll grow, 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 and we think that I'm a Christian, I've been a Christian for 20 years, I should be growing, so I should not then admit to people that I'm really not growing, I'm really kind of messed up inside, and I'm not, not really experiencing the joy of the Lord right now. Sometimes we, we, we get stuck into our way of thinking that we think good Christians are supposed to have it all together, so we just pretend we have it all together when we don't. So, two months ago, a little less than two months ago now, I was faced with the, the necessity to come clean, not about a moral failure, but about one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made in my life. And I, and I think you kind of know what I'm talking about. The whole reason we're in this building right now, guys, it's, it's my fault. It's a mistake that I made. It wasn't a sin. It wasn't a moral failure. It was a mistake. It was an accident. But it was kind of a dumb mistake, honestly. And because of that, there's repercussions that I am reminded of every single day. Every time I come to my office, every time we come into a service, every time we're planning something that happens in the church, 25 phone calls a week dealing with it. All of that is a constant reminder, Tim, you messed up. And listen to me, I'm not saying this to gain sympathy. I'm saying this to say, the gospel works. Because when Paul says it is in our weakness that he is made strong, what he's telling you is stop faking it. Stop pretending you have it all together when you don't. Stop pretending that you're the guy that never makes mistakes when you do make mistakes. Stop pretending that you're the perfect mom that's going to care for your kids perfectly. Stop pretending that you're the perfect employee that's always going to fulfill the responsibilities of your job without a mistake. Rest in the fact. Rest in your limitations. Give God the glory for your limitations that you are not perfect and you're not expected to be perfect. Perfect. But it's, it's at the end of yourself that Christ comes up and picks up the pieces. And, you know, I don't know what God's doing through, through the, the fire that we had and through the need to be in this building and all of that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't know in fullness all that God's doing. But I know what God's doing in me. And what I hope he does in us is he breaks down the walls of pride enough to be able to say to one another, I don't have it all figured out. I don't get it right every time. Sometimes I mess up and sometimes I need grace and forgiveness. And I hope as he starts to break down those barriers to where we're not just all the perfect Christians on the outside and we actually get through into the inside, where in loving community we rebuke, repent, and forgive, then I think what's going to happen is an expanse of our faith. And so he moves on in verse 5. He says, The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, Jesus doesn't, I don't believe, doesn't pick a random tree. um, Because out of the trees that grew natively in that region of Galilee, the mulberry tree is the one with the most extensive root system. Which means it's the hardest to pull up. Which means that Jesus picked that tree for a reason. Everybody around knew this tree is impossible to just pick up out of the ground and pull up. So he picked the tree that was hardest to pull up. He picked the seed that was the smallest, the mustard seed, to to illustrate this huge point. That if you only had less than this much faith, you would be able to do this great action. Now, notice the request and the answer. Jesus, I don't think this is heretical the way I'm saying this, Jesus can be very frustrating for his disciples because Jesus doesn't answer questions. Jesus doesn't always respond to requests. Sometimes Jesus' responses just are, are his attempt or his desire to move something in a different direction because the, disciple, the reason for this is the disciples are asking the wrong questions. Let's translate what Jesus just did into the vernacular. The disciples asked for more faith. Jesus gave an illustration of their lack of faith. He gave them no solutions. He didn't say, do this and you'll gain more faith. Not not in verse 6 here. He he didn't say, here's how you increase in faith. He just said, you're right. So it's like the the request, literally, is Jesus, we don't have enough faith. Increase our faith. And Jesus' response is, you're right. You don't have enough faith. That, that's it. That, that's what the story says. You, you do have a problem. In fact, the problem is worse than you think it is. You have less faith than you think it is. And so, so that's our, our point number five for today. If, is, number one, watch yourself. Number, number two, be ready to both give and receive rebuke in love. Number three, be ready to give and receive for repentance. Number four, be ready to give and receive forgiveness. And number five, it's time to stretch your faith and exercise your faith. What Jesus is saying is I'm the one that gives faith and I'm the one that's going to be stretching your faith. They are asking the right question, increase your faith. Jesus is just making them realize your problem is bigger than you realize it is but I'm going to take you on a journey of following me. Think about the days of what it would be like to follow Jesus. Think about how many times the disciples were challenged and stretched in their faith when they were, when they were um, at, a, at a gathering on a hillside and there wasn't enough food. Do you think Jesus can do anything about it? I don't know. What's Jesus going to do about it? And their faith was expanded when Jesus fed the crowd. When they're faced with somebody possessed by a demon. Can Jesus do anything about this? Oh yeah, he sure can. And their faith was expanded when he cast out demons. When somebody was sick and Jesus healed them, their faith was expanded. And then there was a, the, a storm on the sea. Can Jesus do anything about this storm on the sea? He's asleep over there. Yes, apparently he can. Even the wind and waves, listened to him. And their faith was expanded again. And then there's a dead person Lazarus, he's dead. He's been in the grave three days. Can Jesus do anything about that? Yes, he can. They ex- he expands their faith again. And then he goes to the cross. He's on trial. He's beaten. He goes to the cross. He doesn't complain. He doesn't stop them. He just goes willingly, and he's put in the grave. And it's like, can Jesus do anything about this? And the answer is, of course, yeah, he can. The journey of following Jesus is always like that. A journey of stretching and expanding our capacity to have faith in him. Ephesians 2.8 9 says, By grace you are saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not just is the grace a gift of God, the faith is a gift of God. And God brings us through the circumstances of this life to expand our faith and expand our understanding of his strength in our weakness. It is our weakness that stretches our faith, not our our greatness that increases our faith. And so if we play this out in community, we start to see this beautiful adaptation of the gospel into Christian living, where none of us are too prideful to think we get it right all the time. All of us are willing to actually admit our failures and our weakness, and and therefore repent to one another. All of us are challenged to do this excessive forgiveness that Jesus is calling us to, because it really is kind of excessive. I mean, think about it in your marriage. What what Jesus says in verse 4, or yeah, in verse 4, is if somebody sins against you seven times in a day and repents every time, you have to forgive every time. Now, put that into your marriage for a second. Your spouse sins against you one time and then comes and asks for for repentance, you forgive. Now, they do the second, they do the same thing a second time in the same day. How ready are you to forgive the same thing twice in one day? That's a little bit more of an ask. It's a little harder. Now, they do the same thing three times in one day, and every time ask for forgiveness. Boy, that's, that's real hard. That's getting into kind of like excessive territory. I don't know if I can forgive the same thing three times in one day. But what about four? Most of us drop off the cliff at four. Even if some of you guys are really nice and forgiving and righteous and all that, maybe you get to three. I'm not sure anybody gets to seven that that's kind of a crazy level of forgiveness, and that's the point. Matthew eighteen, Jesus is talking about some of the same um, same ideas in Matthew eighteen, and in that passage, Jesus or Peter asks Jesus, "How many times should we forgive somebody that sins against us?" Now, Luke seventeen is one day seven times. Matthew eighteen is sort of generally lifetime, four hundred and ninety times. And in both contexts, Jesus is talking about the same person, the same sin. It's like, I, can, I feel like I can forgive my wife seven times in a day for seven different sins. I'm not sure about the same thing done seven times. It really makes you wonder. But Jesus, Jesus is radical in his forgiveness. This is the sort of forgiveness he gives to the wayward sinner like us. And this is what the, the life he's calling us to live with others. I'll say again, it has to be played out in community because... We have to recognize there's a difference between apology and repentance. And you can have an insincere apology, an outward apology, that is not real repentance. See, repentance is a 180-degree term. That, that is within the word repentance is inherent in the Greek, that it is to turn around 180 degrees, to go one direction and turn and go the other direction. And so an empty apology is not repentance. Jesus is not calling you to forgive somebody seven times for an empty apology. And it's really hard to tell the difference. And that's why, guys, we need each other. Because sometimes there, there comes a point where you have to look at somebody and say, you've said you're sorry a lot, but you've never really repented. Because your actions have not changed. Now, within, I say repentance is a 180-degree turnaround, and then Jesus says people can do seven 360s in a day because you can repent and go 180 degrees around, and then you can go back to your sin, and then you can repent again. And Jesus says you can do that seven times in a day and still be forgiven. So, so we, we recognize repentance doesn't mean I turn around, I never do it again. But nor is it an empty apology. It's really hard to tell the difference, and it takes wisdom to tell the difference, and it takes the Christian community. It takes people coming alongside marriages that are struggling to know the difference between empty apology and real repentance. It takes people that are going to love them and pat them on the back and put their arms around them and come alongside to help them navigate those journeys. We're going to keep moving. Verse 7. I said, Jesus doesn't really answer the question of faith. How do I get more faith with the mulberry tree illustration? But in verse 7, he gives a challenge. Verse 7, he continues to expose how they're asking the wrong questions thinking the wrong things. Verse 7, he says, "'Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, "'Come at once and recline at table?' "'Will he not rather say to him, "'Prepare supper for me, dress properly, "'and serve meat while I eat and drink?' "'And afterward you will eat and drink.' "'Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded?' "'So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, "'say, we are unworthy servants.'" We have only done what was our duty. I'm sorry to say it like this, but Jesus is putting his disciples and us in our place. Don't get me wrong. If you've received the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're a beloved son and daughter of the king. You are loved by the greatest uh, force in the universe, and you are a part of the eternal kingdom, and you will reign with him in the eternal kingdom. That's a beautiful and high calling, but you are also a servant of the king. And Jesus is saying, some of your lack of faith, going back to verse 5 and 6, which he's following up with this illustration, some of your lack of faith is due to your wrong perception of yourself and your role. Some of your what you mean by increase your faith is, boy, life is so hard right now, and I really want to have a better resolution to my issues. And Jesus is saying, well, you're a servant. And servants don't, don't look for praise just because they do their jobs. Just do your job. You're called to follow, follow, you're called to obey, you're called to serve. Jesus himself didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is not calling us to a life of service he's unwilling to give. He's the example of what it means to be a servant. And so therefore he has the right to call us to a life of servanthood in his name for the sake of his father and his kingdom. So the the illustration would, would be like this. If I if I'm sitting at the dinner table and I'm eating dinner with Jess and then I said and then I get up from the dinner table, pick up my plate that I ate off of, go to the sink, rinse it off and then go and put the the plate into the dishwasher, when I look at Jess, Jess is not going to say, "Great job, Tim. Thank you. That was one dish. You did a great job." Cuz that was my dish. It's kind of like my responsibility. I don't get thanks for taking care of one dish when I was the one that dirtied it, right? And so Jesus is, that, that's the illustration of the servant. He's just doing his job. He's not going to get accolades for every step of the way along as he does his job. Uh, the Christian life is one of joy, but it's also one of duty. Colossians 3, everything you do, work as unto the Lord. Galatians 1, live for the, for the acclaim of God and not for men. We're called to serve. We're called to be as servants to the king and to serve willingly. Verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, if you stop there, that's one kind of story. It's a story of beautiful, abundant mercy. And we've just been talking about abundant. I mean, Jesus forgives at a ridiculous level. It's an incredible amount of forgiveness that he gives. This is an incredible amount of mercy that he gives. Ten lepers ask for mercy. He grants them mercy. And then he sends them to the priest so that they could go through the right processes to be because lepers were cast out of the community because of their dirtiness. When he says go to the priest, it means reenter into the community. You get to be back with your families. But before you can move back to your house as a leper, you have to go to the priest to prove that you've been cleansed. So that's a great story right there. But verse 15, it shifts into the real meaning that Jesus is giving us here. Then one of them, and only one, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give thanks to God, or give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Ten lepers receive great mercy, one responds in gratitude. And so that's my, my last point. Watch yourselves, be ready to rebuke, be ready to repent, be ready to forgive, be ready to exercise faith, serve willingly as a servant. And now, Show gratitude. Ten lepers receive mercy. One shows gratitude. And Jesus identifies the gratitude as faith. This leopard showed gratitude because of his faith. Everyone who's ever given a gift to a child knows how frustrating it can be when kids get a little too used to their Christmas presents, get a little too used to mom and dad's gifts, and start to show a lack of appreciation. And you think, man... I'm not sure if I want to give that kid any more gifts, if he's just going to, going to expect more and more and more and more. Well, the good news is God is not a fickle father like me. God is not going to be displeased with us when we lack the gratitude for his good gifts. But it is a challenge for us that we are not the fickle child that receives great mercy and great gifts from God and then just goes on asking for more and more and more. See, this is is so much of what goes back to the core of their lack of faith. They wanted material blessing, material provision. They wanted to have all of their needs taken care of, and God's not promising that. God's not promising a place for them to lay their head at night. God's promising them a cross to carry with them, and that's what he's promising us too. He's not promising to meet all of our physical needs in the way that we expect him to, but he's calling us to a radical life, a radical life of fighting sin in community by watching ourselves, rebuking, repenting, and forgiving. A radical life of exercising great faith that can rip trees out of the ground and replant them. And ask yourself, with all you see in your life, in your family, in your, in your community, in society as a whole, do you have that faith that says God can work in radical transformation to bring about an incredible revival and bring people to himself? Does that faith exist in you? Because here's here's where I was convicted in studying this passage. This sort of lifestyle lived out in community, because this is, it's talking about rebuke, repent, and forgive. This is not an individual passage. This is a passage that has to be applied with other people that will sin against you, and you'll have to rebuke, and then they'll repent, and you'll forgive. Or you're the one that's being rebuked and then repenting and being forgiven. This has to be lived out in community. And if there's actually a group of people that get the gospel so much that they can live this out, then man, how, how reasonable would it be for society to transform around that? If we as a, a body of believers, just a fellowship Bible church, could live out the gospel in such a way, then we could really be lit on fire ourselves and have a tremendous effect on the community. See, redeemed hearts are thankful hearts, and grumbling hearts are cold hearts. And see, the motivation for the Christian life is not, is not the future blessing that comes from God. Motivation for the Christian life is gratitude for the blessing he's already given. Now, I live in full expectation of the future blessing in the eternal kingdom. But that is secure. I don't do what I do so that I'll earn that. That's secure because Christ died for me. He paid the penalty I couldn't pay, and he made me righteous. So that hope, that reward is secure. My life now, any righteous living, any holiness, any obedience, is not to get something from God. It's in gratitude for what he's already given to us. And that's why it's so important to recognize a redeemed heart is a grateful heart and a cold heart is a grumpy heart. We as Christians need to be living in that hope and joy that we are so thankful for what we've been given and what we've received. We cannot help but love others. In Matthew 18, Jesus closes with the parable of the unforgiving servant, and he says it very clearly in that parable. Those that cannot forgive others, those that cannot show mercy, reveal they don't understand the mercy and forgiveness they've been shown. So may we be a people. Let's find a way this week. Let's be real practical now. We're going to close. We're going to sing one more song, but let's be real practical. Find a way to live this out in radical forgiveness, in radical gratitude in the way you live your life day to day, in radical obedience because of the beautiful love and mercy God has shown to you. Stand and sing with us. Father, we give you all of the glory because it's not through the works of righteousness that we've done, but only through your washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And it is Christ in us, the hope of glory, who has achieved for us salvation and now fills us and moves us out to live in righteousness because, Jesus, you fulfilled the law that we could not fulfill you have now enabled us by your spirit to live a life of obedience. So Father, send us out in your grace and in your mercy that we might be a people filled with gratitude at the incredible forgiveness we've received. Exercise great faith as we live in love and forgiveness towards others. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.